Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. If you are new to this channel, my name is Jay. I'm an investor looking for the smartest home for my cash, maybe just like you. If it is, then you're probably going to like what we do here. Now, my guest today is David Hunter. He's the chief market strategist at Contrarian Macro Advisors. And today we get into his, his near-term, medium-term, and long-term forecast, near-term being the balance of 2023, long-term being his outlook all the way to the mid-2030s. Now, near-term, quite a controversial outlook. He's calling for an aggressive market melt-up. He's calling for the S&P to go up by 70% for an example. Now, a lot of investors might call that crazy, especially if you believe that the market is already incredibly overvalued. And I tend to agree with that statement, but his rationale is quite sound. The number one reason that investors buy stock, he argues, is because other investors are buying stock. And if you look at the S&P over just the last six months, the last six months, it looks relatively healthy. And that is enough for investors to feel FOMO and start chasing rising share prices. Doesn't mean I agree that it's a good decision, but it's often what drives market cycles. So could that continue for the balance of this year? I don't see why not. I don't, you know, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to finding out if he is right or not. After that, he is calling for quite a dire deflationary bust, leading to the most aggressive commodity cycle we've ever seen in my lifetime from about 2025 to 2030, at which point everything is going to fall apart. So, you know, very aligned with a lot of the guests that I have on my show in that you know, our global debt bubble will eventually burst, leading to some kind of a coordinated global recession or depression. He's just saying we can kick this can down the road a lot further than anybody thinks, which is quite aligned with what's happened thus far, isn't it? I mean, this has been the conversation for like the last 20 years. So anyways, I enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot. I tend to agree with his thesis that investor psychology is often what drives short-term share prices. I actually write an essay every Sunday on investor psychology. So even though I manage a portfolio of equities, what I write about in my Sunday essay isn't managing money, it's managing my mind and studying behavioral economics, what I believe really drives market cycles. If you wanna to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, I publish every Sunday, it's free, and there's a link right beneath this piece of content where you can do so. And we, 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 dive? we dive into the... Uh, the nuances of investor psychology, heuristics, biases, our blind spots, what traps us as investors. I think the most important tools in every investor's tool belt. That's what I believe. Anyways, here is David Hunter. Enjoy. All right, here I am with David Hunter. David, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for making the time. Yeah, hi, Jay. Great to meet you, and uh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. There's a handful of different directions that I want to go. Let's start with this. Today, for context, is June 14th, so we just had the Fed meeting. Um, initial thoughts, David, at this point, spun out of what you saw and heard at today's Fed meeting. Sure. Obviously, the... Um, the pause or the skip, as they call it, uh, wasn't surprising. You know, it pre pretty much was telegraphed and, and was what expectations were. Uh, I think the street was a little surprised by, uh, maybe maybe quite surprised by the, the hawkishness. They expected some hawkish commentary, but the hawkishness with, with which the FOMC announced at least two more rate hikes and, you know, talked about the need to remain uh, very much aggressive on the tight side. So I think that was as much 
uh, and I've been uh, saying this for quite a while, I think that was as much to guard against the market running away and getting excited about a pause. You know, they wanted to keep the message balanced so that people were at least still concerned that there's further rate hikes to go. I think they're sincere in believing they may have to hike a couple more times, but I think they've been over backwards to send that message and make sure that people aren't focused on the pause, you know, that they're more focused on the fact that there's more tightening to come. Um, you know, I think that that speech of Bill Dudley's uh, back in April 22, 2022 still is, is resonating in, in uh, Powell's ears. I mean, he's still very much believing that the market, you know, he, he, as much as they're focused on the economy, I think they're also focused on the market from the perspective of not wanting to run away uh, on the upside. So he doesn't talk about it anymore. You, it used to be very transparent that he'd send out his, his fellow governors to talk the market down after meetings because it started to run away. I, I think he's, he learned his lesson that he wasn't in control of the market, so he's less likely to do that. But I think today's sort of the same thing of trying to jawbone the market down a little bit by, you know, staying hawkish. Yeah, that's interesting. And it it seems like in that sense, this could have been a very sincere meeting, right? The, the pause or the skip, as you put it. But, you know, by um, estimating there will be another couple of rate hikes in the future, it gives them the optionality to pull the trigger and stay true to the game plan. But if they don't, it's also easily forgotten, Right. And he stated, I think, probably a couple more years. I think he said a few years before anybody could expect a rate cut. Do you also think that is fairly a realistic timeline? Not at all. I think that's <laughs> kind, of, kind of nonsensical. But that's right. that's how that's how Federal Reserve's, uh, you know, how the Fed works. It's basically um, kind of they're all academics and they they look at long term projections and you know dot plots and all of that. You know, realistically, the way markets work, things get discounted a lot faster and, and you know, you see a lot more volatility in rates both up and down. So I don't know whether we're going to see uh, rate cuts before the end of the year. I think we might be not because they think so, but because the economy could decelerate a lot faster than they expect. Um, you know, they're used to kind of drawing, you know, putting everybody's numbers together and drawing a consensus out of that. That's not realistic forecasting. I mean, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be the outlier typically that happens. So there's a lot of information out there pointing to an economy that's going to decelerate in the second half. Yeah. Um, and, and they are not anywhere near recognizing, I think, how fast it can decelerate. Yeah, you've got, um, you know, leading indicators certainly pointing sharply down. You've got, you um, you know, money supply obviously has contracted. You've got, you know, the the very rapid rise in rates and what it's done to the financial system and and credit conditions. Um, and, you you know, you look at the 7% mortgage rate and that's going to have an impact on the housing demand. So even though we've had a spring summer bounce in housing, I don't think that's going to be sustained. So, uh, you know, I think I think as we move through to the end of the summer and into the fall, you could begin to see the economy decelerate faster than they expect. Um, so, as I say, I don't I don't put a lot of uh, credence or uh, confidence in in 
Fed forecasting. You know, they they've not got a great track record of it. I think they're trying. I don't I don't question their their abilities as economists, as academic economists. Um, Powell's obviously not an economist, but but uh, you know, again, history of the Fed says this is not where you want to go to to kind of project the future. You know, they're they're typically going to give you a consensus forecast that's not going to prove correct. Now you've you've spoken on Twitter and in a few interviews about your forecast for a market melt-up through the balance of this year. Relatively aggressive, right? S&P maybe to 6,000, 7,000 points. Can you walk me through that thesis, David, and exactly what you're expecting could occur? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for being uh, polite because it's a lot more than relatively aggressive. <laughs> it's it's uh, A lot of people would call it crazy. Um, but um, yeah, it's basically saying... You know, we got last year, you had so many people line up on one side of the boat. You know, everybody got bearish, um, you know, starting after uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And from there on, with inflation, you know, blowing up and and uh, um, the Fed getting aggressive, um, it was pretty easy to see that everybody had moved to the bearish side and was projecting pretty dire things. You know, 3,200 became a consensus and there were a lot of people looking for a lot lower than that. So um, I'm a contrarian, and you know I've, st- I've been involved in behavioral investing for 50 years, and uh, it was pretty obvious to me that you know it wasn't going to work out the way everybody expected. And my thesis was that um, as uh, you know, you got to a point at 3,500 in October. And very extreme bearish sentiment. Um, people were just assuming it was going to 3,000 in a hurry. And I was bullish and said, you know, I think this is the bottom. Um, and as the tape moved up, you could see people were remaining on the bearish side. The sentiment was remarkably staying to the bearish side. And it's only obviously since we've broken above 4,200 that you're beginning to get some of that positioning nervous and you're beginning to see it gradually shift. And, and, you know, investors, both retail and professional, typically are driven by the tape. They may not know so or say so, but uh, as the tape moves up, you'll see more bullishness come in. You'll see, and and for for the uh, institutional investor, the pressure gets immense as they continue to miss the move. Um, You know, their returns fall behind. They can't hide in a 5% money market. They can't be satisfied with, um, you know, lagging the market when the market's starting to really move away from them. So so the pressure becomes um, kind of the thing that, that pushes the market even further, uh, feeds on itself. Uh, you know, some of it's FOMO, some of it's short covering. But, um, and, and my belief is that we're very early on in that process. Um, and what will help it fundamentally is this whole thing of as the economy slows, interest rates are going to come down, the dollar is going to come down sharply, um, and so, and and the investor is going to begin looking over the trough. If they can be convinced, they won't be convinced by today's rhetoric, but 
if they can be convinced that the economy is decelerating more rapidly and that the Fed's tightening is over, that's a signal for them to look over the trough, to look past the slowdown, whether it be a recession or what have you, um, and and start projecting higher numbers in 2024. So everybody, you know, as you know, there's there's one guy in particular who's very focused on today's earnings or this year's earnings and saying the market has not yet discounted the bad news that's coming. I think that's discounted. Uh, and I think what's not discounted is a change in expectations to higher numbers next year. As that starts happening, as the earnings estimates get raised for 2024, it gives more room for the market to move up. So what seems insane in terms of talking about an S&P 6 or 7,000 at S&P 4,000 when things look dire or certainly look like we're going the other direction in the economy, um, all of a sudden, when you're up at 5,000, you can start rationalizing 6,000 because you're raising earnings estimates for next year. So that makes logical sense in my mind. Buying feeds on buying. Investors that were bearish see the market start to run, feel like they're missing the trade. People chase share prices. They always do, right? And so- exactly. We're anticipating more of that for the balance of 2023. Your thesis also comes with a deflationary bust at the end of it. And so I'd love you to walk me through if you can speculate on what those catalysts might be to turn that market sentiment. I mean, everything lines up in terms of the bull, like a, a rally running here in the market in terms of FOMO, people chasing share prices, a pause in rate hikes. Like, you know, it doesn't take much for people to, people to become bought optimistic and start buying in again. And we're witnessing that. It's occurring. Look at the S&P chart. Yes, it's looking very bullish. Um, but where are the fractures? Where are the vulnerable points? And are they, is it just economic data? Or what leading indicators would you look for to think, like, we're getting towards the top of this and this market's about to turn? Yeah, because I've, I've had this, by the way, I've had this view of we're going to have a melt-up first and then a bust following the melt-up. Yeah. Um, for quite some time, you know, um, and, and basically 2020 and 21, I was saying that too. Um, and we did have a melt up, um, but this, ex you know, what happened in 2022 extended it. Um, so, but so along the way, what's funny, this is psychology is back in 2021, uh, towards the end of 2021, I said the market's, you know, running up against the place where it needs to correct. And so I, I anticipated a correction in 2022. I didn't expect the kind of bear market we got, but I was anticipating 10% or more. Um, and But at that time, what I was hearing from everybody was, melt-up makes sense. I can't see where you're going to get the bust. Of course, the market had just run off 100%. So they were, you know, they were bullish. Um, fast forward six months and, and the six months following that, and all I heard up until very recently, all I heard was um, the bust. I believe your bust. I get your bust. I don't get your melt up. Your melt up. You're going to be wrong on your melt up. So again, psychology, because we were, you know, uh, people were very negative and they could understand the rationale for a bust. So now we're beginning to push where more and more people are coming to the bullseye again. You know, it's gradual, but starting, like you said, and. And so now it's melt-up is becoming at least believable. 
And people are starting to say, yeah, but where's that bus going to come from? And I'll, I'll say my answer to that is my, my whole thesis is a, a bust is, uh, I define a bust as um, more severe than a recession, but at the speed of recession. So it's, it's basically, it'll feel like a depression, but it'll happen in the context of maybe a year, you know, 12, 15 months. You know, not not like the Great Depression that runs for a decade. So, um, so it's something you know, and I think it's accompanied by a financial crisis uh, of historical proportions. So, my my whole reason for calling for a bust rather than a recession, a uh, normal recession, is the leverage in the system. We've got you know three hundred trillion in global debt, uh, and that's up from two fifty trillion just a couple of years ago. So it's it's moving up very rapidly. Um, and quadrillions in notional value derivatives, which is leverage on markets. So we've, we are at a place where we've never been before. Leverage is something that works great on the way up, helps enhance returns on the way up. Um, it decimates you on the way down. So a normal downturn, when coupled with this kind of leverage, um, turns into something bigger. Uh, and I think bust basically something we almost saw in 2008-9, but they pulled us back from the cliff just in time. This time, I don't think they are going to be able to pull us back from the cliff before it happens. So um, so I think bust means major bank failures around the world, less so here because of the medicine we took in 2008-9. You know, our banks are less leveraged than, by far than they were then. Europe's very vulnerable. You guys up in Canada are very vulnerable. The banking, the banks up there were very clean going into 2008. They have they didn't learn our lesson. They have they are now us. <laughs> um, yeah. So, in uh, Australia is very leveraged their real estate, and, and I think they are in trouble. So, and of course Asia is a wild card. You know, China is a wild card. So, so I think um, you just have far beyond any leverage we've ever seen before. 2008 nine. I mean, it was just the last cycle. We're way beyond that degree of leverage. So it's been, you know, it's been a dozen years here just levering up like crazy. Um, so that's where the bus comes from. Um, it's helped along by what I think is a very big policy error, what I call potentially the biggest policy error in history. I think the Fed is making an egregious mistake. I think they've overstayed the tight tightening uh, already by a lot, and they're you know talking about tightening further. Um, they are guilty of wanting to see the results before they change their policy, right? You know they want to see two percent inflation before they change or something close to that. This stuff, the way and I've tracked, you know, I came into this business seventy three, so I've tracked six cycles. What I've seen in every cycle. Is stuff happens gradually until it doesn't. And then all of a sudden, it, the crack cap is very fast. I mean, we saw a little sliver of it with um, Silicon Valley Bank and, and the events around the regional banks, yeah. how fast things can change. You know, it was basically a weekend. Um, and that's what I think we're going to see on a much larger scale globally at some point. And I don't know whether it happens this fall, this winter, um, early next year, but it's in that window. I think it's sometime between uh, beginning of fourth quarter and end of first quarter. That's kind of when I think the bus really 
gets going. And um, so that's, you know, and as I've said, the melt up when we're at six or 7,000, I'm going to be turning, I'm going to be the you know, extreme contrary. And I was in the other direction saying, you know, this thing is, is a house of cards get out. And I guarantee you most, most investors are going to be all in telling you why this thing has legs, you know, why it's the beginning of a cycle. It just started. Yeah. you know. But, so, so this isn't the normal cycle. I mean, this is what I keep saying is this is the end of a 41 year secular bull market that started in August of 1982. That's when disinflation began. It's going to culminate in this blow off top. And then, you know, the biggest um, bear market and, and downturn we've had since the Great Depression. You know, it, it, I completely agree with you. If the S&P right now is, you know, 4,300, if this runs to 5,500, 6,000, 6,500, of course. I mean, when you make a bet on something and the price goes up, most people just are the recipient of higher conviction that their idea was even better than they thought it was, right? And so they double down on that same bet. I'm smarter than I thought. I'm more correct than I thought. Look, affirmation in the price of whatever it is I'm trading. And so if you're curious bullishness at 4,300, you're aggressively bullish at 6,300 with our question. I mean, we, that's, we, we've seen that, that sentiment. That's hu human behavior. Um, your comments about the Fed um, executing the uh, biggest error in, uh, in policy history on the back of waiting for results to change policy. So what you're saying is that they're essentially waiting on real-time data to adjust their policy when in reality, their policy doesn't hit the market for you know six, nine, 12 months at times, right? Precisely, yes. There's a, a large lag there. And that'll force them, well, if you follow that game plan, inevitably you end up going too far down the path further than you intended. Um, what do you think is going to break first? Like what strikes you as, as what happens when you go too far down the path as maybe they've already done? And yeah, by the way, yeah, I should add too um, that the other thing that's in here that's different is we had the pandemic and yeah. we had a, and we had a shutdown of the entire world economy uh, for a quarter. And, and then, you know, pumped in so much liquidity, so much, uh, you know, monetary and fiscal stimulus, unprecedented. So what we what we have is a very confusing cycle. Uh, that's why it's taken so long to slow, even though I think they tightened too much, you know, months ago, um, because there was that excess savings that was pumped in from the government. Um, and, you know, and there, there's been this shortage of uh, workers because the pandemic kind of kind of pushed a lot of the baby boomers into retirement and also sidelined a lot of the kind of the lower end workers, teenagers, et cetera, because of the pandemic, their parents said, you don't have to work or whatever. So I, I think that all has extended the cycle or confused the, the indicators um, and makes it even harder for the Fed to kind of get, get their hands around what's going. Um, so I forget what your question was. Um, well, I, I guess I was I was curious, you know, what you thought might be next to break. I mean, that was Powell's statement not too long ago. We're going to keep going until something breaks. Um, yep. and, we broke and frankly, a few banks. yeah, he broke a few banks in normal times. 
I think a Federal Reserve, our previous Fed regimes, would have seen that as the signal that we have to ease. But again, because this one is for a couple of reasons. Number one, they missed the inflation run up. So they're feeling like they don't want to be too early and going the other way. They're, they don't want to make two mistakes. So they're they're almost making a double mistake because they're still thinking about the error they made the first time and now overstaying the tight side. Um, and, and I think um, Powell's also, even though he's been on the Fed for many years, He's, he's an attorney and he's, I think he's a very capable guy, very smart guy, but he's not a market guy. And so uh, I'll go back to the Bill Dudley speech. I think it's the most reckless thing and the stupidest thing that ever came out of the Fed is to say that you should target the stock market, that, that the Fed knows best where the stock market should go. When they decided that you know, the market has, you know, his whole thesis, as you know, was that to tighten credit conditions, to tighten financial conditions, we need a much lower market because of the wealth effect, et cetera. So in essence, he's telling the telling Jay Powell, you need to target the market lower. You know, you, you need to drive the market lower. And for many months, you could see it. As I said, you know, last fall, every time the market picked up its head, out came five or six Fed governors to talk the market down. And he was clearly targeting 3,000. Um, and then he kind of learned his lesson. He had his head hurt and to him because the market kept going against him and moving up through the end of the year and into the early January. So he stopped doing that. But I don't think he's abandoned that thought process that, you know, the market, the market going up is a bad thing. We have to, you know, we and, and also he's very aware of the Fed put and the criticism that the Fed got for having a Fed put. And he's trying to reverse that and make sure the markets know there's no Fed put. The Fed's not coming to the rescue. So all of those things are kind of in his head. And I think that means when it's time to ease, which it probably was time to ease when Silicon Valley went under, um, and when it will be time when the economy decelerates even more, um, he's not going to be ready to do it because of all these things in his head telling him we got to, you know, we got to be careful. We don't want to, we don't want to reignite inflation. We don't want to, uh, you know, cause the markets to go up because they believe we're be, we got their back. So all those things are, I think, going to be part of the thing that causes the error is that those things are all kind of hanging around him and saying, you know, I got a, I got an error on the side of tight. When in fact you're on the edge of, you know, meaning months away from perhaps the biggest um, economic decline and biggest financial crisis in the post World War II era. Um, so, I think it's an interesting time. And again, I, it's not that I think he's stupid or that he's not trying to consider both sides of things, but you got those things out there that I think make kind of make it a perfect storm. Okay, so let's say this thesis plays out 100% correct. Um, I would then ask myself, how do I play this as an investor? And maybe the obvious answer is, well, buy the market, right? Ride this melt up. Um, I am not going to do that because I just feel like if I don't have a competitive advantage, I don't like to play the game. Like that's just 
frankly speaking. That's just, I'm just being honest. I don't have one when it comes to buying the S&B, so I'm not going to do that. Plus, even if this melt-up lasts for nine months, it's just too short of a time horizon for me to have confidence in my ability to time that. Um, that's too short for my liking. So I'm looking at very undervalued, and I like equities. I do buy equities. I buy a lot of commodity equities right now. We can talk about you know what I'm looking at. Love to get your thoughts on this, but you know I like things that nobody likes. That, you know that's the contrarian of me, which is a hard muscle to flex, isn't it? By the way, to run into the burning building, like it's easy to say you're a contrarian. To actually do it is a whole different story. But you know, uh, for those of us who don't want to chase the market up, right? Where do you look? For safe haven status right now, do you do you see anything that's that's egregiously undervalued right now, David? What strikes you as a good buying opportunity? Yeah, I'll tell you. I have to walk a very fine line as a macro strategist. I can't. You know, I'm not licensed as an advisor, so I can't give advice and I can't make recommendations. But I can say this. Um, I think. And, and first, I'll say, um, in answer to your response, you're right. I think. Uh, and I say this on Twitter all the time. We're it's a it's a conundrum here because if I'm right, we're about to see a forty to sixty percent rally from here in perhaps less than six months' time. Almost unheard of, almost unprecedented. At forty sixty percent in the S and P and and more in the Russell and in the um, Nasdaq uh, and certainly in other areas, other sectors. That those kind of returns are typically, you know, two, three plus years worth of returns. And just because they happen in six months, I just I caution people, know yourself, because everybody has to kind of judge for themselves what's how nimble are they, how how comfortable are they with risk, et cetera, and how how well are they gonna be able to discipline themselves on the other side. So there's no one size fits all, everybody has to make that decision. But so in short. It's a huge reward, but as you're saying, it's a huge risk because it's so short term. And yeah. of course, I could be wrong. Um, but um, that being said, the the area, um, one area where I think there's uh, reward, but also relatively low risk, is in long duration treasuries. Um, you're you're at if if my thesis plays out. We're at peak inflation, or we we we're at peak inflation six months ago, eight, eight months ago. Inflation's coming down. Um, long rates peaked back in September, October, um, and although they're back backing up here, and I think you could fill in a gap at 390 on the 10-year. You've already filled a gap at 4% on the 30-year. I think your upside in rates is very limited and your downside, I'm, I'm calling for 250 on the 10 year this summer. And then, um, you know, zero or below on the 10 year in the bust. So if rates have peaked or are very close to a secondary peak here, I would argue that um, you can almost have your cake and eat it too there because if, if the, unless, unless you get a breakout in inflation, you can take the the lower risk of a of a um, government guaranteed bond, lower credit risk, and get the interest rate benefit of a, a, a declining uh, period here over the next six to nine months, or actually probably six to twelve months or longer. 
Um, TLT, for example, selling down in the low 100, 102 or three, wherever it is, I think can get to 200 in the bust. Won't be a straight line. You know, you'll have some backups along the way, but you know, to be able to say you could almost double your money in in a um, a government guaranteed long duration treasury vehicle is very unusual. Number one, and you know, allows people who want to sleep at night to at least have something where I think the downside risk is not great. Because if if the economy comes fast, if the economic decline and financial crisis comes faster, um, you're going to see the treasuries get bid up. The only the real risk in treasuries is is if you know inflation breaks back out here, then you could have a you know rates rise farther and and maybe exceed their peaks. I think that's low probability event, but that's my view. Um, in terms of um, you know equities and things. It's yeah, it's it's people have to understand you can make an awful lot in a hurry if I'm right about my equity forecast, but I'm also calling for an 80 percent bear market, 80 percent bear market within this next 12 months. That's heavy. OK, so play with caution on that front. What are you what are your thoughts on alternative asset classes? Uh, let's go into. Gold and Bitcoin. Bitcoin, which has largely tracked the S&P uh, to a greater or lesser extent, more than I thought it would. But what are your thoughts? Gold and Bitcoin, David? Yeah, I, I beg off um, all crypto, Bitcoin in particular, uh, or not in particular, but Bitcoin's probably the one that everybody you yeah. know, should look at if they're going to look at crypto. And um, I beg off it and just say I don't follow it. I, I want to see it get through the bust. Haven't been through a full cycle yet. I want to yeah, okay. see what happens. So I, I just don't follow it. I have my opinions on it. I, I am skeptical of it, but um, you know my my views aren't worth a lot because I don't follow it. Um, I, I've appeared on a couple of um, crypto sites. Um, you know, uh, Natalie Brunel's. Um, you know, I, I was with her before she took off with crypto. So I mean, she interviewed me for, a couple of years ago. So. Um, and and uh, more recently, another one. So, so uh, you know, crypto guys do follow me, but I really don't offer any opinions on crypto. Um, okay. I'm, I'm a huge bull on gold and silver, both here and longer term. Um, I believe gold can get to 3,000. This has been a long-held forecast for me in the last, certainly the last year or two. I think gold can get to 3,000 pre-bust. I think silver can get to 60 pre-bust. Uh, which means this year probably, um, and and then I think they get hit pretty hard in the bust, along with most assets, um, and and certainly commodities, um, and then post bust. I think by the end of the decade, because of the amount of money that's going to have to be pumped in to save the system globally, I'm I'm forecasting the Fed's balance sheet will grow to 30 trillion in the bust. So in the next two years. Um, because and proportionally similar around the world in every central bank, um, uh, because the system's basically imploding. Um, because of that kind of money, we're going to have a commodity cycle unlike any in history. So, well, I'm predicting $500 oil, I'm predicting $20,000 gold, I'm predicting $500 silver uh, by the end of the decade. So, you know. 
there's a there's a nice run this year, but the true run is post bust, which is basically 2025 to 2030. And so you mentioned gold, oil, and silver in that post bust run. Would you also lump in other hard commodities? If you're bullish on oil, would you be bullish on copper and nickel and and a variety Absolutely. of basket yeah. base okay. metals? Copper and the base metals will all run um, and and be far beyond any levels we've ever seen before. Um, you know, many fold from current levels. I think ag com commodities will play um, big time. Um, I I think you know natural gas obviously will run with with oil. Um, I I just we are. I talk about an 80% bear market in equities, and then I, I also say that we will not see the highs reached in this final blow-off again for decades. So this is an all-time peak in equities for at least the next two decades. Um, and people get very discouraged because I'm also calling for a collapse in the 2030s, uh, uh, you know, global collapse um, economically, financially basically the end of a 90-year Ponzi scheme. <laughs> um, so people get very concerned about what do I do, you know? And I go, you have one last huge opportunity, you know, 20, 2025 to 2030 in commodities. It will be a cycle every bit as exciting as the, you know, the last 40 years in equities, um, except it'll happen in a very short time. It'll be through the roof. So if I were to walk through this a little bit, uh, market melts up through the balance of 2023, at some point, deflationary bust, 80% correction thereabouts in the market, putting us in pretty dire territory, broad equities, from, from a broad equity standpoint, through 2024, a um, lot of economic pain, um, probably a lot of jobs losses, probably a crashed housing market, um, that will inspire record stimulus globally fueling a commodities run from 2025 through the balance of this decade. Um, all of that I can visualize. What is leading to your 20 mid 2030s global economic bust and how will that be different from what you see occurring um, through 2024? Yeah, the biggest difference is the fact that the bust because we're on the verge of deflation, even though everybody's worried about inflation, the bust will be deflationary. In deflation, the central banks have unlimited ability to print, right? In inflation, if they print, they're just putting more gasoline on the fire. So yeah. in deflation, they so even though they're gonna okay. talk now about inflation and not, you know, not wanting to ever go back to what we did the last couple decades, you know printing money like crazy and propping up everything when you're faced as a policymaker and you know both both our government bureaucrats and our fed policymakers when you're faced with an economy and this is true of all the governments around the world with an economy that's imploding and major banks around the world just dominoing into failure you don't sit by and say, well, I can't print money because that might be inflationary. You do whatever you can to save the system, right? And so they'll print money like there's no tomorrow. You know, we saw $5 trillion come out of the Fed in uh, 2020, right? This will be, you know, probably four times that. 
four or five times that. And it's because, you know, it, it's basically seeing the whole system before your eyes starting to fail. Uh, you know, look, look how nervous people got with Silicon Valley Bank, which was, you know, just a one regional bank and how that was starting to domino through regionals. Um, this will be, I think Europe's the most vulnerable. Their banks are a mess. Um, but also, you know, our banks will be hit. It's, there's a lot of counterparty risk. Um, there's all kinds of things out there. And and you're going to see businesses, you know, there's going to be, a, a, um, you know, a forced um, deleveraging, you know, a lot of involuntary debt liquidation um, throughout the world. And so the only the only policy tool they have that works with any speed is money. I mean, you know, you can, they can declare moratoriums and things like that on debt, but, um, you know, the only thing they really have where they can respond with the speed, you know, when markets implode, they move by the minute, right? They move quickly. You can't wait for Congress to sit down and deliberate. What are we going to do? I mean, they were pretty, they were pretty damn quick in March of 2020, but it still took a couple weeks and then it's piecemeal. It's okay. We'll do this. And then, you know, they're back to the drawing board. Okay. We'll add another tranche, you know? And so um, the thing that can be pushed out in a hurry to save a system is money. And that's what you will see. And money, of course, works with a lag. It does some things in terms of liquidity immediately, but in terms of turning economies and things, it works with a lag. So they'll put in trillions and still be seeing things deteriorating and have to put in more trillions and see things deteriorate because it takes six to nine months for things to start turning around. So yeah, um, so the financial can be stabilized, but the economy won't be immediately. So that I mean, that's the difference between now or, or next year and what I see in the 2030s. In the 2030s, so with that kind of money, what you're going to get is a commodity-driven, inflation-driven recovery with a lag. You know, So it probably starts in 2025 sometime and accelerates as you move through the decade. And what, what it means is you're going to go back to inflation at levels we saw in the early 80s, and I was there, um, and probably exceed that. So my, my guess is we're going to see 25% inflation year over year. Um, and, and if you get that, what are you going to have for just government rates? I mean, I'm, you know, in, in 1981, we got to 15% on the long bond and, and the tenure in, in this next cycle, I would expect it to be higher than that. So somewhere between 15 and 20%. When you've got debt at the levels we're at now, and then you add to that because the money, you know, let's say we do 20 trillion expansion in the balance sheet. That's going to be accompanied by 20 trillion in new treasuries and 20 trillion in new fiscal stimulus that they're going to monetize it. Yet, um, so so you're going to have debt even far higher than it is today. Try to solve that equation. How do you fund debt with 15 percent and higher service costs? And T bills, of course, will be 20, 25 percent. So it, it can't happen. I mean, initially, early in the cycle. When because you're coming out of deflation, so rates are going to be down near zero, it'll take a year or two to get them up to the high single digits towards double, and then they you know ramp up from there. So, the first couple of years, they're going to try to solve that equation um, with more debt, 
you know, let's float more debt to service our debt. That that ends very quickly because you're pouring fuel on the fire and you're going to end yeah. up, you know, you, you just can't keep up with it. You know? um, so, so by the end of the decade, I think you basically have no access to capital markets as a government, as a, as a treasury. Um, and you have, you have this um, budget that's almost entirely consumed by servicing your debt. I mean, you're going to, I mean, my dire prediction is you're going to be in the 2030s with no welfare system, potentially 50% unemployment rates or higher, no social security or limited social security, you know, a bankrupt social security system, a bankrupt Medicare system, you know, no, and, and that's just the U.S. This is going to be around the world. It's not, this is not unique to us. But basically, the unwinding of a Ponzi scheme that started after the Great Depression or during the Great Depression and, you know, has ramped up each cycle and has really been, you know, ramped up crazily in this last cycle. So I just don't, I I think it's, it's the end of a super cycle. And I define super cycle as that cycle between, that big cycle between two depressions, the 1930s and the 2030s. That's really interesting. You know, it's because you're, you're, end game is incredibly aligned with so many of the guests that I have on this show. The difference would be your uh, expectation that we can continue to kick this can down the road a lot further than people think. I mean, to add in another 20 trillion to the balance sheet, to be still having the, the, the stimulus conversation in 2030 is beyond, I mean, it's not that far away though, when you, it's, you know, seven years, right? But like, right. Right. Just relative to a lot of, granted, gold bug leaning guests I have on this show, which tend to trend towards pessimistic dystopians, specific to Fed policy. You're you're almost yeah. more optimistic in the near term, right? That we can play. Yeah, what, what, yeah. What I say, you know, I say the difference between a Peter Schiff and I is Peter Schiff thinks this is we're down for the count this time. Right. I go as long as you have deflation, you have a printing press. Yeah, you know, that that game ends when you have inflation because the printing press is shut down. So so it it buys you one more cycle. What I also they'll do tell people because they think I'm endorsing. I go, this is not at all an endorsement of anything. I'm just telling you this is inevitable. This yeah. is where we're headed. You know, it's it's it ends up in something worse. People can't figure it out. They go, why are you why are you rooting for a melt of? I'm I'm not. I'm telling you what's going to happen. I'm just forecasting. Yeah. I'm not endorsing. Now that's an important distinction because you can forecast the price of something and not have any emotional attachment to the asset, which for some reason triggers people. It's like, I, you know, I own gold. I'm not a gold bug. If you love, right, you trust right. me, love the asset all you want, guarantee that asset does not love you back. It's a one-way relationship. Yep. <laughs> and, and every and every asset has its day in the sun and has its dog day. You know. Yeah. Uh -huh. Hmm. I love that. Look, David, I want to thank you for coming on and, and chatting with me. I feel like we got to do a follow-up um, towards the end of this year and uh, and sure. revisit a lot of these, a lot of the conversation points. I want to point everybody to your Twitter, uh, David H. Contrarian. It's at David H. Contrarian. And you produce yeah, a right. quarterly macro report. Um, to get access to it, they just DM you on Twitter. Is that the best method? Yeah, that's probably best. I'm on Twitter every day, but just to correct it, it's at Dave H. Contrarian, not David. So um, thank you. It's an easy mistake. Um, and and by the way, there are lots of people out there 
Um, yeah, I've got 190,000 followers. So I'm one of the typical with a number of followers that gets the fake accounts. So people have to beware, be buyer aware that there are lots of people out there that have a handle. They'll have my profile picture. They'll have everything that looks like it's me. Um, and they'll change one letter in contrarian or something. And yeah. you'll be, you'll be thinking you're following me and you're not. And it's, you know, it's some a-hole that is just out there to create a nuisance. You mean that wasn't you selling me uh, crypto trading tips the other day? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get a lot, you know, a lot of them will put out a sarcastic tweet. You know, they think I'm nuts anyway. So they'll put out some, <laughs> something that sounds like me, but in reverse, et cetera, or more right. exaggerated. So Dave H. Contrarian. There it is. And DM him for the quarterly macro report. Check that out for sure. Once again, thanks for your time, Dave. I appreciate it. Okay, Jay. Great to see you. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.